morning, everybody. Welcome to the study in the book of Revelation. And uh, this will be the start. Um, but before we do anything else, let's pray. Okay, that's good. good. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day you've given to us. Truly, this is the day that you have made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom we enjoy in this country to assemble like this without fear of persecution. It's not like that in so many parts of the world this morning, but we do thank you for your hand of protection and blessing upon our country. And we just pray for our country, Lord, because we know that sin is a reproach to any people, but righteousness exalts a nation. And that's what we pray for, Lord, that our nation can move into the direction of righteousness. So, Lord, we commit our time into your hands as we get into the study uh, of the book of Revelation, the only book in the Bible that a special blessing is presented and promised to those who will read it and hear it and keep those things that are written herein. So we just thank you for the blessing, Lord. We pray, Lord, and we invite your Holy Spirit to guide and to lead us into all truth as we look at your word and that it may convict, edify, instruct, correct us, Lord, as we move forward. And as the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, Lord, as David prayed, open my eyes, Lord, that I might behold wonderful things out of your word. So we commit this time into your care. And we pray that everything we do might glorify you. And we pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, just a couple things by way of introduction. And then Marie's got a little commercial back there announcement too. Um, how, first I have a question. How comfortable is it chairs this style? Or if we, if we I can get a, some guys in to set up tables, but it's going to, everybody might have to not be able to sit down right away when you come in. Or is this okay? And if we put maybe seven, eight tables back there for those that would prefer the tables, is that? Or do you prefer tables throughout? It doesn't matter. How many does it matter to? I've, it's a democracy. Okay. Tables are nice. That's a good statement. Tables are nice. Um, pardon me. Church. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, very uh, politically correct. We're going to set up about ten tables back there, and the balance will be chairs, and we'll keep rolling that way, and if we want to change, we can change. Okay. Um, so, as we get into the book of Revelation, uh, one thing I really encourage is conversation, discussion. If you have insight, question, something you want to add, I think that just adds to the fellowship and to our uh, digging into God's word, and it, therefore, I'm not just lecturing here, but it's really going to be a a collaborative, cooperative kind of effort when we get into the book. Uh, we'll meet here every, start at 11, and then this class will go to the 15th of December, and then there's the Christmas, New Year's break, and then Mark will be announcing a, a, a special apologetics is coming up in January, February, uh, that will be a slight, there'll be an intermission while we develop and go into the, the two books, one story kind of meta-narrative of the Bible. Um, let's see. Okay, Marie, do you want to make an announcement, please? Okay, so just for those that are new, what we do, we really enjoy having the fruit and the baked fruits in the back. Um, and so what we've done is we half it up. Someone will bring the baked goods, and then someone else brings the um, fruit. Uh, and then it has to be veggies. It's just you want something healthy and maybe something not so healthy. <laughs> so uh, we share that out. And so we're going to have a sign-up. 
December 15th of this year. Yeah, right. Thank you so much for compulsion. No compulsion, but if you like to do it. I, I think it promotes fellowship and kind of because we do have that gap of approximately 25 minutes to a half hour. Any questions, anything about the class going forward or any of this at all? Okay. Okay, let's start arguably one of the most fascinating, interesting, controversial, uh, spiritual books in the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation. Now, uh, first and foremost, it's, it, the very first line says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That, that, is the th that is the central core of this book. Now, people have latched onto this book. I'm going to get into how Revelation has influenced popular culture and movies and music. And usually it's pretty wrong. But we're going to look at that as we go through this course. But, um, you know, people think it's doomsday, it's apocalyptic. First of all, apocalypse does not mean doomsday. Apocalypse means what? Unveiling, revealing. In other words, if they had a great statue, they uh, the artists were working on, you know, let's say, in Rome or somewhere, and they had it shrouded. And they'd have a, this one day where all the people in the population would come together, and as they pulled the ropes and all, the unveiling would expose uh, the, the, the great statue or let, whatever it might be. But it, it, don't confuse uh, the word apocalypse with apocrypha. Apocrypha, I'll go over these words later and hand out uh, uh, word meanings. That means something that is hidden, that needs to be decoded. And not so with apocalypse. The, the revelation, the apocalypse, this is, this is the unveiling of Jesus in his supremacy, in his uh, glorified state, in his kingship. All of these things we're going to see as we move uh, through the book of Revelation. But th that's the key. It's not revelations. Some people think it's plural. It's not. It's singular. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as we move forward in this... Uh, this is the key, uh, like I said, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things we're going to see here, I'll touch on this later, the word lamb is used 27 times in the book of Revelation. Lamb is one of the most critical themes. I believe it's the unifying theme as we move through these chapters of the book of Revelation. The lamb as he was slain, the wrath of the lamb, uh, those that followed the lamb, all of these kind of features. So bear that in mind as we move through and again, if you have any questions or things you want to add, please feel free to, to jump right in. Um, now, this is, uh, just to get a little ahead of myself in verse 3, this is where John says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written it in, for the time is near. So there's a special blessing pre presented on who? First and foremost, those that... Read it. Now, back then, maybe 20% of the population was literate, or somewhat literate. So as these letters went, we're going to see the letters were distributed through the seven churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. They were often be read uh, to the congregation. And then they would have discussion, or a, a preacher would expound on the word. But first and foremost, they were read, they were shared. But then he says, those, blessed are those that read it, those that hear it, just like you're hearing it, we're all hearing it today, and those that keep those things. Does anybody have a different word for keep in verse 3? Take to heart. Take to heart the idea of obeying, following, being encouraged by it, being convicted by it, whatever is contained here in uh, the, this book. This is one of the first blessings. There's seven blessings um, in, in the book of Revelation. And all of this stuff that I'm giving, you can have the PowerPoint afterwards if you like, at the end of the class, at the end of the course. 
So there's seven blessings uh, in the book of Revelation, okay? And seven we're going to look at is a, is a prominent number uh, throughout the book of Revelation. Why do you think that might be? Why seven? Seven means completion. Remember, God created the earth six days. He worked the seventh day. He, he rested. And all through the scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, you see this idea of seven. You know, man shall work six days, the seventh day. Then they have this seventh year sabbatical rest. And then you'd have this feast of weeks. Of what you'd have seven weeks times seven, uh, seven years times seven years would be 49 years. The next year, the 50th year would be the year of Jubilee. Jubilee. Uh, same thing in the Gospel of John. You'll see John is structured around seven I am statements of Jesus. I'm the way, I'm the bread of life, I'm the good shepherd, and seven miracles, which John calls signs. So you see seven moves through it. So you would expect, am I talking too loud? No. I, I never know because I don't hear myself. Um, you would expect if this is the final book, if this is the completed book of God's revelation to man, it might have that watermark or that kind of uh, DNA, if you will, of seven, completion, perfection. We're going to see that when we get to chapter 22. He says that's, the book is complete. Uh, God's revelation to man is complete. As a matter of fact, one week we're going to show uh, the comparison between Genesis and Revelation. They're what theologians call bookends. What started here, what happens way back in Genesis chapter 2, 3, and 4, you see it completion and fulfilled and consummated here in Revelation. It's real interesting, but it speaks to the fact we do not need another revelation, another source of authority. Most cults will start because the founder will start a new book. The Quran, the Book of Mormon, Jehovah Witness, New, uh, new World Translation. You know, this is a good, but this is new or a better revelation. You're going to see when we finish the book of Revelation, we don't need, and this is complete. God's revelation to man is complete. Any comment on this or, or thought? I'm just kind of like laying a foundation here going forward. Okay, so, and again, uh, as, as we go through it, we're going to see there's seven blessings. Some theologians call them the Beatitudes of Revelation, special blessings. This book is, so many people fearful of this book, and they're not sure of this book, this story, but it really is a blessed book for believers. That's the critical issue. You know, those that will follow hard after the Lord, those that are faithful, those that are committed, those that will persevere in times of persecution. Where it comes down hard is those that turn their back on God, rebel from God, not only are disobedient and are following this other direction. That, that runs through all the pages. One of the things we'll do, as, uh, there's many things we're going to do in this class, but one, I'm going to show you that there's three major interpretations of this book. We won't do it today, but I'm going to show you and walk you through it, and then you get into the book yourself and, and see how this moves through. We'll also show in Matthew 24, when Jesus starts to elevate discourse about the end of the age and the destruction of Jerusalem, these other things, that one of the first things he'll say there is, when he, before he begins that discourse, is let no man deceive you, okay, concerning what's coming or the end times or this, these kind of things. But he prefaces it, let no, and, and th this book has actually been used, uh, a classic example that it's extreme, but think of David Koresh in Waco. What was his whole deal? Do you remember what he said he could do? And he was waiting to do it, and once he accomplished it, they would leave the compound. He said he had the understanding the mystery of the seven seals in the scroll of Revelation. Do you remember when the FBI were going back? He goes, I'm working on the seals. You know, 
That's how crazy it can get. Most all of your cults start with a heavy doomsday, apocalyptic message that they'll try to pull from the book of Revelation. To get through. We'll study that as we see how it's influenced culture uh, throughout church history. So here we go. So what's the goals? I mean, how are we approaching this book? First, we claim the blessing. Two, it says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Please note, all scripture to include the book of Revelation. You understand? So all scripture, and, and all scripture is profitable. It means it, it should benefit you, it should benefit me in some way. As we go through this book and, and discuss it and see how it applied then, how it applies to our lives today, and we go through it, that's one of the goals is that we can, we can find out what is contained in the book of Revelation that teaches us, that rebukes us, that corrects us. You know, throughout church history, the, the church has always been on a self-correcting adjustment. If you study most of the epistles in, that Paul writes, they're to correct something that's going a, a little out of alignment in Corinth or Galatia. And certainly when Jesus addresses the seven churches in chapter 2 of 3 of Revelation, uh, he will admonish them and rebuke them, but he doesn't cast them away. He says, uh, repent or return. He wants to do this like correction, self-correction. That's why it'll say in Jude, verse 3, contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. I believe every generation of believers have to affirm what is it we believe, what is it the Word of God says, and how do we pass that off to the next generation. Yes? And then to the next generation. If we drop it, we drop it. If you study church history, there's been times, dark ages, where there was very little of the gospel light in popular society and culture. So these are some of the benefits we're going to see. Second... Uh, we have to study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman, it's going to take work as we look at scripture and compare scripture and definitions, who doesn't need to be ashamed. Now, this is very important. How many think the word of God is under attack today? <laughs> so, how many think there's a lot of lies being spread out there today? What's the antidote, or what's the pushback for lies? Truth. And where is truth? Jesus says in John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer to his father for believers, sanctify them by the truth, thy word is truth. That's powerful. Sanctified means set apart for God's use, made holy, sanctified. How? The agency is the word of God. Yes? It's so important. To, yes, please. Uh, any other book? Okay, I'm going to give you, uh, can you give me an example specifically? Not a fan. Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. I'm thinking like the Quran or the Book of Mormon. Well, uh, oh boy. I mean, uh, <laughs> hey, come on, we just started this book. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not, no, I, no, well, good question. I, I think, oh boy. I think, I think when this book is replaced by another book, it's problematic. Now, does that mean no other book can help us or inspire us? Or No, be, well, I, because it says in Ephesians chapter 4 that God is giving apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers, 
for the edifying of the body, right? Different giftings. They're gifts actually from God. One of them could be teachers. That teacher might put that in a video or a tape or a book. But if it replaces the Bible, i.e. the Book of Mormon, the New World Translation, the Quran, the Book of Dianetics with Scientology, then you got problem. Now that's a short answer to a big... I'm not trying to be flippant or something. You know what I'm saying? I'm just trying to answer in real, like, I guess, short... These are big questions, don't get me wrong. Um, I always revert to like a coffee, you know, like a little fortune cookie answer. Oh, yeah, you know. So, no, but that's, my, that's what I would imply. Is it, now, if the book goes counter to this book, you got problems. Now, I think that's happening today in, the, in Christendom. And we're going to study this when we get into the seven churches. Five of those churches are in major drift. We are in a time and age when denominations are being shipwrecked because they left the compass of this word off the table, okay? The deity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, his blood atonement, a coming judgment, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, verbal inspiration, uh, the sufficiency of scripture, on and on. That's being replaced and misplaced, and another book replaces it, then you got problems. All right, we're doing good. I got verse one, okay. Uh, so now this is important, rightly dividing the word of truth, and we'll do more on this. But when you read, especially what's known as apocalyptic literature, uh, Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, these are written in a different genre, a different style. If you read the Gospel of Luke, I teach that on Thursdays, Jesus gets in a boat, goes across the Sea of Galilee, he's asleep in the bow with a pillow, there's a storm, he wakes, he calms, he gets off, there's a cemetery, there's a, there's a demonic there. That reads like a newspaper. Yeah, yeah. There's Tiberius, there's the boat. There's nothing uh, metaphoric. Or, or we're not making an analogy of some sort. But when you read of a creature coming out of the sea with seven heads, or a woman riding a beast, that does, that, that is, that's a different style literature. You understand? And th this is a very important, we understand. We'll get into this, that's a whole, when we move into this kind of stuff. What is the genre? Uh, the Bible is loaded with different styles of writing. Poetry is different than parable is different than a proverb. When Jesus says, uh, if your right hand offends you and leads you to sin, what do you do with it? Cut it off. Rather go into paradise with one hand rather than to hell with two. Well, is, it, is, he, is that literal? Do we take that literal like thou shalt not commit adultery? No, he's speaking in hyperbole. That's a Jewish principle to take something to the extreme to make a point, a truth point. We'll get into this. I'm just saying, when we rightly divide the truth, one of the important things is to understand the style or the genre of the literature. Yes? Any thought on this? We will get into this for sure. Um, now, this is one of the main themes. Jesus says this in John chapter 15. One of the reasons we study the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is Jesus says, these are the scriptures which testify of me. Now, he's referring to the Old Testament here. But Jesus is the central figure of the Bible. You know, you've got two books, one story. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 24, Moses and all the prophets and the Psalms wrote about me. Okay, that's, that's, and you're going to find that particularly uh, in the book of Revelation. We are looking for the person of Jesus in his full, literally, glory, so to speak. You know, his full, resplendent, you know, glorified uh, personhood and kingship. 
Uh, the other one, uh, this is very important for me, and whether Marie and I are teaching here or in Southeast Asia, it doesn't matter. This is the goal, that we all grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. That somehow what we discuss and teach and have conversation about as we get into the book earlier, somehow this is changing us, that it's transforming us, that it's convicting us, it's edifying, it's illuminating, it's causing us to want to seek God more, draw closer to God, to eliminate those things that easily, be, sin that easily besets us. This is, this is one of the main goals of this class for me uh, in, when I teach. I always tell the classes I teach, you know, whether it's Exodus or Luke or the, if we're just studying a book, uh, it's, a, it's a book club. It's a really good book club, but it's a book club. I don't want to be facetious. I'm just saying this, this word should impact us. It should, it should cut and convict and correct and illuminate and encourage. And any thought on this? You understand this is, this is where this thing is moving. And that's where John moves with this whole revelation he's receiving. Okay. Let's get into it. Here's, here's what uh, one a famous uh, theologian says about the, uh, the book of Revelation. Of the 404 verses in the book of Revelation, approximately 278 of them make some allusion to the Old Testament. In fact, of the 39 Old Testament books, one writer has found that Revelation alludes to 24 of them. Certainly then, by having a good knowledge of the Old Testament, and especially such books as Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah, one will likely have an easier time understanding the book of Revelation. So one of the things the book of Revelation forces us to do, to interpret, is take us back to the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And that's very important in our day and age, again, because you never hear somebody say, well, you got your religion, I got my religion, and I got this holy book, and you got, well, what distinguish, what, what's our response to that? I mean, what, not to be critical of any other belief system, but what makes ours unique? Or, or does it? Is there anything that does make it unique? Huh? Yeah, what Jesus said. But somebody might say what Muhammad said, or somebody might say what Confucius or Buddha said. Huh? Okay, the resurrection, good. Historically. One of the big ways, and when you study how Jesus made his case, yeah, for thank you, Michael. Uh, like when John the Baptist is in prison and he's going to be beheaded shortly, and he has doubts. He says he sends his disciples to Jesus and says, What? Are you the one? Or should we look for another? Now he baptized Jesus, right? He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But here, at, later in life, when he's facing death, he's in Herod's prison, he had doubts. There's nothing wrong with doubts because he knew where to take his doubts, to Jesus. What did Jesus respond to John's disciples? Go tell John what? I am he? No. You go tell John the blind see, the crippled walk, the poor had the God. He took him to Isaiah 35, Messian, uh, about the fulfillment, and that was it. Okay, got it. Same way with the two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. They did not know that was Jesus walking alongside them, right? Because their eyes were holding or something, and they're downcast because they thought it was all over. Their Messiah, they thought, is now crucified. And then Jesus does what? He opens the scriptures to them. With the law, Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, and he shows himself in every book. I always say those are the teaching tapes I like to grab a hold of. But, uh, 
But at the end, what does it say? They know it's Jesus. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened to us the scripture? He'll do the same thing with his disciples later on in chapter 24 of Luke. My point being that to go back into the Old Testament, there's no other religious philosophical book in the world that has fulfillment like that. Telling 500 years out, when Messiah comes, he'll be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata, that he will be pierced, not stoned or, or thrown off a cliff, pierced. And 1,000 years ago from Psalm 22, what was capital punishment in the Old Testament? Stoning, not piercing, not, not this, you know, why is that there in Psalm 22 or in, you know, other places? So the idea of getting into the book of Revelation is going to force us uh, to go back into the Old Testament. Somebody have their hand up on anything? Okay. No. Uh, there it is. Uh, lamb is mentioned 27 times in the book of Revelation. It is the central theme of the book. Okay. Uh, the victorious lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's interesting John uses this because John opens his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us and then he, the curtains come back and then John the Baptist says what? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It, 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 because... There's very few scholars that don't agree that John the Apostle is writing the book of Revelation. The style is there. He's use of, uh, uh, you know, with the sevens, use of the term applying Jesus, not only just the Lamb of God, but also the Word of God. We'll see that later in Revelation. So it's very, no, nobody's going to deny, or the, I, the few scholars will deny it's John the Apostle writing this, but very few. It's not credible. This is, this is from John the Apostle. Uh, let's look a little about John. First, he's, he's the brother of James. Uh, he's called the sons of Zebedee. Jesus calls him the sons of thunder. Mark chapter, remember why, why did he call them sons of thunder? Remember, the, they wanted to call down judgment on a group that wasn't following Jesus at that time. He calls them sons of thunder. It was James and John whose mother asked what? Can my, one of my boys sit at your right hand? Another one? <laughs> that's, that's all right. You know, and of course, um, He's a fisherman by occupation. He's one of the inner circle with James and Peter. They will be with Jesus at the transfiguration. They'll be with Jesus uh, when he raises the dead girl. You know, they go into the room, just those three. Uh, they'll be with, those three will be with Jesus at Gethsemane. Interesting, in each of their letters, they will call themselves a slave of Jesus Christ. Those three men will call themselves bondservants or slaves. They were the closest to Jesus and they relate to the resurrected Christ. They, 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 I self-identify as a slave servant. Um, uh, he is called the one that lo Jesus loved. John will never reference himself by name, uh, but it's implied, you know, each step of the way. That's the one that was closest, that at, even at the Last Supper, he was leaning up against Jesus, so to speak. He's present at the crucifixion. He's entrusted with the care of the Virgin Mary. He wrote the Gospel of John, also first, second, and third letters. And he writes the book of Revelation, and tradition has it that John was the last apostle to die. Perhaps a natural death. We don't know, not real sure. Any questions on any of this? This is kind of sliding into this book here. Okay. Now here's, here's the, uh, where he promises the blessing in verse 3. Uh, there's the seven blessings uh, we're going to get into when we get into the book of Revelation. No other book quite like this that has a special blessing. For those that will hear it, that will read it, and it'll apply it to their lives. 
Now, when you go, let's look at verse 1 for a minute. The revelation of Jesus Christ. How does this message come to us? What is the transmission like? I mean, how, how does it follow? Who does it start with? Daniel interprets the dream. He'll bring the message to Mary. She's going to have a child. He'll bring the message to Zacharias. And his wife Elizabeth will have a son, John. You'll often see Gabriel. It's not mentioned Gabriel, perhaps it's not, but the messenger angel is often Gabriel. And who's the protecting angel or the militant angel? Michael. Michael. You'll see, we'll see him in uh, the book of Revelation when we get to chapter 12 and 7. Then it goes to who? Seven churches, but also who else is included in that? Who does it say? Does it say servants? Let's see how it reads. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants, plural. That's who? That's us. We're included in this first verse. I think how important this book is if it has that kind of kind of lineage you know the transmission is coming down that direction okay uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place uh, that's important this is a prophetic book now when we get into study prophecy the word prophecy it could, we all always try to interpret it predictive and there's a lot of predictive stuff in here but prophetic could also not just be foretelling, but it could be what? Forthtelling. Forth In other words, God's person is, prophet-like means mouthpiece or mouth. He's, he's speaking the truth at that moment to the people, even to a rebellious people. God could send a prophet and basically repent, get right with God. It could be forthtelling, because when we see the seven churches, a lot of that is just uh, forthtelling. God, God is speaking the truth to those churches in that present moment. Would also be foretelling. Does that make sense? It's predictive, uh, which again makes the Bible very unique in its predictive quality. So it could be foretelling, you know, like when Isaiah comes and he's telling the people repent. That's often the message of the prophets is to get the people right with God. They've drifted. That's that we're going to see that that theme runs through the Book of Revelation. Okay, uh, must take shortly, uh, and then he says uh, he sent and signified. Signified, of course, we see the word sign, and what we're going to see in the book of uh, Revelation is John is going to use a lot of signs, a lot of, 
uh, symbols, uh, just like I said about the number seven, you know, how that's used, and he, he's going to use uh, animals. You know, you'll see the lamb, you see the lion, you see the dragon, you see scorpions come out of the earth, you see all these kind of images, uh, images, you know, m metaphoric, if you will. Um, but John, some he's going to interpret for us, and some he won't. Some he explains, this means that. Others, we have to go back to the Old Testament, and others, we're going to have to just put it, you know, some, we'll, we'll see when we get there. Uh, I found out over the years that one of the best ways to approach the, approach the book of Revelation is with humility. <laughs> because it, it's, it's a profound, it's complex, uh, there, there are themes, there are messages here that are, I believe, apply to all the church age, but there are things in here that require quite in-depth uh, comparison and structure as it goes. Uh, yes, please. A little bit louder. I, I, I read and, st and do the studies out of the New King James. New King James Bible. Um, now, John will say here, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony uh, of Jesus Christ. Uh, th this is an important element here because John is now saying basically what he's seen and heard, he's going to bear witness to that. Uh, one thing a witness does is simply tell what he saw. Yes, in a court of law, you tell what you saw. Uh, I find it very interesting that how many apostles did Jesus pick? Twelve, and when he called them to be witnesses, he just wanted them to go out and what? Tell what they saw. How many do we have on a jury present day? It's supposedly uh, twelve to verify the truth. But the idea being here that John is being faithful to the message he received. He says the same thing in the Gospel of John. What I saw and heard, I declare unto you. That, that's, but this word witness could also mean your life. It comes from the, it comes from the word where we get uh, martyr, martyros in Greek. And often that meant martyr. You witness with your life, okay? So you could do it with your word, uh, and some would actually witness with their life. Uh, Paul will say this about uh, uh, Stephen when he talks about him being stoned to death, that uh, Stephen did this as, as, a, as a martyr, uh, in, in the book of Acts, he says he witnessed as a martyr, or as, with his life, you see. And that's kind of, uh, when we look into who John is writing this letter to, uh, it was a horrific time uh, in, the, in the Roman Empire, in that world that day. Um, dating this book is a little tricky. Authorship is not. Uh, how early it is or how late it is, some will put it between 80 and 90, 92. Others put a little earlier date. We can look at that as we go along, but you got to remember, you're looking at, however you cut, the, cut this thing, you're looking at Nero, Domitian, Vespasian, and some of these guys were crazy. I mean, they were megalomaniacs, even Herod the Great. They were tremendous builders and what they accomplished, but, you know, it's like having Charles Manson as your king. I mean, they, they were just that kind of crazy. And, of course, they could target Christians. What was one of the main reasons they would persecute or target Christians back in the Roman Empire? Yeah, they did not care about religion or superstition. The whole thing Rome wanted was what from its populace, all spread throughout the Mediterranean? Huh? Loyalty. No rebel. No revolution. We do not want revolution. When we were in the uh, Colosseum six months ago, and the guide, a historian, professional, said one of the reasons the Colosseum was built to keep the people from fomenting revolution, you know, and they said give the people bread and circuses. 
give them bread and circuses and they'll be happy. You know, they built the policy. Remember, that was, that was it. And so they did not want this idea of a rebel or revolutionary. And therefore, if you were into superstition, you're into the occult, you worship Jupiter, you worship uh, you know, whatever, okay, fine. But uh, you declare your allegiance to Caesar Augustus, you know, the God, you know, the son of God, you know, this idea of the deity emperor. And if not, and Christians wouldn't, uh, they would take, you know, you, they said sometimes they just march the citizens in front of one of these big statues with an altar or incense altar, and all they want to do is people take a pinch of incense, put it in there, and declare Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Nero is Lord. And if, if somebody came by like Christians and did not do that, they could be executed or imprisoned. That, that will play out when we see there's ways these guys are going to force their hand to find out where the real Christians are at. It's very timely. This book is very timely for the time we live in today. Some scholars and researchers feel that the 20th century was the greatest persecution of Christians of all time. This 20th century we just came out of. And we'll look at some of the numbers as we go along. Yes, please. A little bit louder, Rich. Yeah, he, actually, he'll make, he'll, he's going to make several um, time references here, uh, even in this chapter, uh, things that are, things that are come shortly, things that will come later on, and we'll get into this time sequencing as best we can. We know when he says the time is near, one of the things, it is present when he writes those letters in chapter 2 and 3 to the seven churches. They were literal churches in Asia Minor, Ephesus, Smyrna, these guys, and they're going through different conditions or circumstances. Then, then it moves and we get into more on the predictive side and future things going on. So we'll discuss that as we go along. But certain things are, are right going on now. Some things are coming a little bit later and onward. Okay. Um, he bore witness to the word of God and again and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Uh, John will even say that about himself. Just look at verse 9. And I'll, we'll get to this later in the study. But he says in verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos. Why? For the word of God and for the what? Testimony of Jesus Christ. Same thing he assigns to Jesus here. He assigns to himself there. You know, the word of God and for a testimony. And, and now our testimony, uh, thank God, well, I mean, we're not paying with our lives today, but nevertheless, we should be willing to profess Christ. Am I right? I mean, opportunity to share our testimony. Your testimony, my testimony, is one of the most powerful ways of sharing the gospel. Am I right? Why? You're the world's expert on what happened to you. And your story, or my story, you're just telling them who you were beforehand. Study how Paul packaged his testimony. Here I was beforehand. Here's how I came to Christ. Here's how he changed and transformed my life. Every one of us have a testimony, if you're a believer. And that's powerful. And we shouldn't hide that, under a, uh, that light under a bushel. The other thing is the word of God. And this is under major, major attack today. Major. Why? Because we live in a culture where the highest virtue is tolerance. Okay? Am I right? The highest virtue is tolerance. Now, tolerance is good. Uh, I don't want to get into a real big discussion, but as a, as a, as a missionary, a, a legendary missionary once told me, and we would go into all different kind of people groups around the world. He says we should always be tolerant of people, but intolerant of truth. Now, what do I mean by that? 
Simply this, we should be very tolerant. You take any Judeo-Christian-based country, Canada, America, New Zealand, Australia, etc. we generally allow, we're very tolerant. A synagogue here, there's a Buddhist temple on the east side, one of the biggest mosques is up in Parma, atheist society on these college campuses. We don't force them to close, or, am I right? But you go certain parts of the country, like my friend just went to Riyadh, he was an x-ray tech or a high-skilled guy. They took two Bibles away from him when he was trying to clear a passport in uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. We, when we served as mission directors, our mission organization, we had to slide people out of a country, get them into a border country to protect them because they found literature, Bible literature, in their rooms, you know, when they went into the homes. This is the deal. Light does not fear darkness, but darkness fears the light. I'll say that one more time. Light does not fear darkness, but darkness fears the light. And there's places in this world today that are extremely dark and resistant to the light of the gospel coming into them. By word, by email, by internet, by radio transmission, let alone a human being. How did I get off on that? Okay, here we go. Yeah, that's it. Okay, Tom. Okay, verse 2. Uh, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now, coming back to books, I think books are very important, but if it gets us away from this book, that's problematic. And that's where, in a sense, uh, where studies are done by Gallup and Barnum and these other ones, in general, Christendom tends to, Christians tend to be somewhat biblically illiterate. Would you believe that? Uh, we don't, we don't, you know... Uh, we, we should be able to know and at least explain at a basic level if somebody says, well, I just think Jesus was a really good man and I think he left us a good example. Could you explain the deity of Jesus Christ? Could you kind of, in a, in a winsome way, or show about why do we believe in the Trinity and why do we don't believe in three gods but one God eternally revealed in three distinct persons? Or why does God require blood? Why is Christianity the only religion whose focus is the cross? where our teacher and founder dies a brutal death, where all the others had teachers, Muhammad and, and the Buddha and all these, you know. Can we explain that? You understand what I'm saying? Or, or not? That's why cults, when they come knocking to the door, their basic premise is that an average Christian comes to the door, they'll get them in a scriptural pretzel knot in, in like 30 seconds. They'll show you this verse, well, that verse, and all of a sudden you're like, what? You know? Because we don't know. We have to learn how to handle the Word of God. Always have, maybe even more so in our day and age. Okay, then he says here, um, verse 3, Blessed is he who reads those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep those things which are written uh, for the time is near. Here's make another time reference. Now he's going to say, John, to the, seven, to the seven churches which are in Asia. There you see seven again. Uh, seven churches, remember? You're going to see seven, seven woe judgments, seven bull judgments, seven... Seven, 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 all the way through. And it starts with these seven churches that Jesus is going to write an epistle to. You know, not an apostle. This is, these are letters coming directly from Jesus himself. And he starts with grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So when, when, if you study the letters, the epistles, they'll often use this introductory greeting. Grace and peace to you. Why does grace come before peace? Please? Okay, I like that. You, we don't have peace unless we first have grace. Okay? God extends his grace to us. We are saved by grace through faith. 
You know, it's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. But having, having received God's grace, the free gift of salvation, now, first and foremost, we have peace with God. You know, the guilt and sin has been removed. But then we can also have the peace of God. You know, th th this book is promising us a lot of blessings. One of them is this address, grace and peace be unto you. How many of us need that today? Grace and peace. Uh, how can, can we increase grace? Can we increase faith? How? Huh? Yeah, faith cometh by? How about grace? How? God gives grace to the humble. So, we're going to see there's ways we can appropriate the word of God right to our present day situation. Okay? Um, John to the seven, verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia Minor, grace to you, peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now what John is going to be doing here, it seems, is he's introducing the Trinity. These messages is coming from the Trinity. And if you notice, he says, who is and who was and who is to come. This is very similar to the statement that God greeted, or uh, think of Moses at the burning bush. And Moses says, well, who is going to send me? What's your name? I need, I need to know what authority. And what does God say to Moses? You tell them that I am that I am send you, the great I am. He doesn't have a past. He doesn't have a present. He's, a, he's just continually, as it were, timeless. You know, that's what it says in Isaiah chapter 57. He inhabits eternity. God has no beginning and no end. So we saw the message first and foremost up here comes from where? The Father. Now John is kind of expanding on that just a little bit. Now when he says here, uh, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now many believe this is a, a multifaceted look at the Holy Spirit. And you'll see this, uh, if you will, just turn um, uh, to Isaiah chapter 11 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, there shall come forth, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Who's that? Who comes forth as a rod from the... What's Jesse? Who's Jesse? David's father. And this little stem is going to come from him. Remember, it was truncated, the, the, line of, the kingly line of Judah with all the captivity. But out of that is going to come this little uh, rod or a branch and grow out of the roots. And the spirit of the Lord, one, rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, spirit of counsel, might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. So this coming one, that's why the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus at the baptism, right? Even when he proclaims, uh, when he reads in Nazareth, you know, he opens the scroll and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to heal the sick. So many believe what we're seeing here in Revelation, and we're going to see that when we get to the throne room, these seven spirits before God, is, is a title, uh, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. Now it would fit, the Father sends the message by the Holy Spirit, and then from who in verse 5? Jesus. Do you understand? And you'll see the same use of the Trinity in like Ephesians chapter 1, where it moves here, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You know. uh, now a lot of people, 
say, well, show me the Trinity, show me. It, it takes a little, but it's not hard once you, you know, use the word of God. I always tell people, we don't, we don't believe in the Trinity because we fully understand it. We believe in the Trinity because it's fully revealed in God's word. You know? There's, 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 there's big concepts and truths God gives us that we finite minds cannot fully comprehend an infinite God, but he gives us enough information that we can come to a certain apprehension and belief in it. Does that make sense? We'll, we'll use that as we go through the book of Revelation. Okay, now he says, um, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Now this firstborn, of course, you'll see in Colossians 1 and other places. He means his, uh, number one, he's the first, you know, he comes out of the ground, for, he's the first in the resurrection, preeminence, high priority, first, foremost. Do you understand? He's the, what we're going to see now in Revelation is all these ascriptions to Jesus, these attributes, these high and lofty attributes. One is he's the firstborn from the resurrection, the first fruits, remember the old, and then we all are going to enter into that one day. You know, he's the first, 1 Corinthians 15 says we will follow because he's the first fruit in this, in this whole line. Um, uh, witness firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, that's important now because John is writing this letter to people who are under the thumb, under the heel of kings and provincial leaders and centurions and, you know, but to know that God is over all, you know, he's the king, you know, and this coming king is coming, but now he can rule and reign in our hearts. He can rule and reign in our families. He can rule and reign, in our, you know, as we allow him, you know, so this is, this is, he's declaring who Jesus is here. You know, he is the king of kings. I find it very interesting. At his birth, who heralded him as a king? Which were what? Were they Jewish? Gentiles. What did Pilate even say? And right above the, his cross, king of the Jews. At his birth, at his death, he was declared by Gentiles to be king. Right? He is the king. He is the Lord of the Lords. He's the king. One day every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. That's why John is, what does he move us through this? We're going to see Jesus is in control. Jesus is on the throne. The world is going crazy. Everything is chaotic. Or, you know, when we move into this thing, but he's in control. He's on the throne. Ergo, we as his people can come under that. Howbeit, it might mean persecution or displacement or imprisonment, whatever. They're, we're going to see what they're going through. Somebody had their hand up on this point? Okay. A ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests. This is, oh man, this is open. Look at these three verbs. What has Jesus done for us first? First and foremost, he loved us. In this, God has expressed his love. In that, Jesus died for... Yes, Kathleen? While we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. While we were yet sinners. Because he does that first. What has he done second? Frees us. Some, some, what is the other translation? Release. Washed us in his blood. Does that mean coming Washed in the blood. Yeah, washed away our sins. Uh, uh, the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The idea of blood is going to be big in Revelation. 
you know, the lamb that was slain, the blood of the lamb. They overcome the Satan or the accuser uh, by the word of the testimony and the blood of the lamb. It's very important. I don't know, you know, how many grew up had a lot of hymns that contained the blood? <laughs> Is it me or what happened to that video? Uh, okay. Um, now notice, wash is not first and then he loved us. He loved us and then washed us. He doesn't love us because we're clean. He doesn't love us because we're in right standing. He loved us when we were in, in sin, but he doesn't leave us in sin as we come in repentance and faith. He washed us. Too many people think they have to clean up their whole act before they'll come to Jesus. That can be extremely frustrating because they're not getting the power, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the, being free from guilt to overcome that sin that so easily besets them. You see? It's not, it's not reversed. And even us as believers, we have to be a little bit careful because oftentimes when we want to share the gospel, we will point out other people's sins first. See? That can be problematic. Why? Because they know they're sinners. You know, when I was on, uh, before I accepted Christ at age 27, they sat me down, these Jesus people in downtown Cleveland, they go, they took me through the Roman road, they go, John, he goes, do you know what it says here, Romans chapter 3, 23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, do you admit you're a sinner? I go, yeah, check, I got that worked out, but what do I do, you know? <laughs> I didn't know, people know that, they want to know, give me the news, give me the good news. And if we constantly point at these things that, that are wrong, don't get me wrong, abortion and, and all these sexuality stuff and that and this and that, but that's not the issue. All of those things are the bitter fruit of a life cut off from life in God. We have to preach Christ and him crucified. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you When do you clean fish? Ah, after you catch them. Okay. Then you deal with the sin issues. Then you deal with the sin issues. Okay? But notice that, and then he does what? Made us. Ah, uh, what? We'll close on that. Kingdom and priests. That is, why is that term so interesting? Kingdom and priests. Because Christ is a king. Christ is a king, right? But king and priest. Why are those two together? In the Old Testament, can you have a priest, a Levitical, and a king? There's only one in the Old Testament that's both priest and king. Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood is not over to the order of Melchizedek, uh, Levi, but Melchizedek is both priest and king. But part of our inheritance is that now we receive priesthood. He's, he's got to wash us first. Don't get me wrong. We've got to be cleansed. But why are we priests? Turn, I'll start closing. But turn to 1 Peter for a moment, please. And we'll up on this next week. First Peter chapter 1. Um, now, now he talks about us coming to Christ, right? He, he says, um, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 2, as a newborn baby desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. So newborn baby implies new birth. When you're born again, you're like a child you have to get the word, you know, grow in the word and then move on to bread and strong meat, hopefully. Um, and then he says, verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Verse 5, you also 
as a living stone are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Why are we a priest? What function do we have today that the Old Testament priest, only the old priest in the Old Testament could do? There was something very primary that they could do that the rest of the people could not do. Pardon me? Come before the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Once a year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, only a special priest through special ceremony could go into the presence of God, right? What does it say in Hebrews? Hebrews 10, Hebrews 4. We can come how? Boldly into the presence of God. You see, that's, that's, that's profound. That's, that's earth-shattering. Who are we? We can offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. We can intercede for those that don't know Christ. We can present our bodies a living sacrifice. That's priestly language, you see. James chapter 4 where it says uh, draw nigh unto God he will draw nigh unto you wash your hands, purify your all of that's priestly language understand? very very, okay, then he says down here verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal there's kingly priesthood, a holy nation his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light just that one verse alone ascribes to us so much, so much. You know, how are we kings? How are we kings? Or not? When it says he's made you a royal priest, or he's made you kings and priests, is that just kind of poetic? Or? Huh? Child of the king. If you're a king, you have authority. <laughs> one of the things Jesus says... All, after his resurrection, all power and authority is given unto me. Go ye therefore, make disciples of all nations, right? And then in Mark, he says, I give you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions. With the power over the demonic. We have the power to read God's word and to share God's word. We have the power to stand in a gap and intercede for somebody that's far away from the Lord. We have the power to understand the scriptures. Do you you know how many people in the world today just don't, this is a closed book, like, am I right? Just a closed book, because you cannot understand this book unless you have the Holy Spirit. It says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. Through the spiritual man, all these things are revealed. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. We have, we, we'll get into this whole thing of the royal priesthood. I'm not talking prosperity and gospel and all this stuff. I'm talking about who we are in Christ. And one of the powerful messages of the gospel when we worked in Southeast Asia for many years, that they didn't have to fear evil spirits. You know, in our country, we don't think about this that much, but Asia, Africa, South America, this is a real thing. And to know one of the benefits is you don't have to fear that stuff. I'll close on this. Luke chapter 15. Well, let's turn there. We'll close on this. This is the famous uh, parable of the prodigal son. And we know it happens. The, the young brother asks for his inheritance. He's not ready to cope with it. And the father gives it to him. And he goes off to a far country, Luke chapter 15. And uh, the economy bottoms out. His friends leave him. And he ends up with what kind of occupation? Huh? Not only a pig feeder, what's his own diet? What the pigs leave for him. Now, if you're talking to a Jewish audience, you don't get any lower than that. You remember? You know what I'm saying? That our Lord's sharing this message, and then he says something very important, verse 17. But when he came to himself. That is a pivotal phrase that I think everybody has to come to in their lifetime. He came to himself. 
And what does he say? He says, uh, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and spare and perish? And, and he says, he remembers the love of the father. Everyone that truly comes to Christ, I believe, has one moment came to themselves. Where am I going? What's my life all about? He turns, and he, we know what he does. He makes a plan. I'm going to go back to my father. But notice when he comes to it, he says, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to say to my father, verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me, remember this idea, make me, like one of your hired servants. And, he, and now he follows through. A lot of people have good intentions when they get caught. There's a big difference between regret and repentance. Just saying. Okay. He rose and came to his father, but when he was still great way off, his father saw him, had compassion on him, ran to him, fell on his neck, and kissed him. In that one verse, look at those verbs. What is that? Who's the father in this parable? Heavenly Father. What does it say first and foremost? He what? Saw him from far off. Did God see us when we were afar off? He saw me when I was really afar off. Okay? But who makes, who runs to who? The father, the wealthy landowner, and that was unheard of. He runs, what does he do then? Hugs him, and then what? Notice he closes the distance. How did the sun look coming up that dusty road? How did he smell? <laughs> what has he done to the family name? He has nothing, nothing to offer in way of self-worth. And notice what the father says here and where he stops him. He says, and the son, verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Stops him right there. You know why? Our worth to God is not based on what we can do for him, make us a servant. It's based on his grace towards us. Amen? Amen. Then he comes, and the father, look how he treats him. He brings out the robe. He puts on the ring. He brings out the sandals. He, he has the fatty calf. They're singing. Makes you wonder why the kid left the home in the first place. But he gives him, gives him, gives him, right? So when we look at this idea of where God made us kings and priests, he gives us as part of our inheritance, we're going to see as we get into the book of Revelation, resources and enablements and all these other ways to live a victorious life. Any closing comments before we close? Yes, Jim. You know, that's basically why it's so difficult to get a person who's got everything going right for him. No, no problem. He's not in the pigsty. Yeah. And try to get him convinced to come back to the Father. Uh, You've got to be at the bottom for most people to reach that point. Yeah, any comment on that before we close? Did you hear that? Some, sometimes it seems people have to get to this place like the prodigal son before they'll actually call out on God. Am I right? right. Some people don't look up until they're flat on their back. Uh, sometimes it takes a crisis to come to Christ. But not always. You know, I mean, but, you know, that's, that was the case in, the, uh, let's say, Chuck Colson. He was in a federal prison. He was here. He was an advisor in the White House, the hatchet man. He ends up ashamed, you know, criminal in a federal prison. The rug was pulled out. There he meets Christ. He gets out. He develops what is considered today the greatest uh, prison ministry in the world because of that experience. You don't have to be down. I know some people come to Christ, you know, on a bright, sunny day. Some of us come on a dark, stormy night. Anyone else before we close? Okay, next week we'll pick up in Revelation. Read the balance of that chapter, if you will, and who would like to close in a word of prayer, please?